mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Science are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and then they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today operates a small business with Season 2 guest Dr. Timothy Nelson and is deeply connected to her roots in New Mexico, as more than 14 generations of her family have farmed and homesteaded here. Marissa Royboil has raised a family, she has worked in the once-flourishing Seattle music scene, and she also worked in the stock trading business. Marissa Royboil, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Hey, thank you, Lawrence. Good to be here. Did I get that all right? Yes. Yes, yes. 14 generations. Thank I can't you. even, I don't even know, I only have on one side, I only have like one generation before me who was born in the United States. I don't, I don't know a whole lot of people. And how, I think it's amazing, and maybe we can get into this later, it is amazing people who are that aware of their, their genealogy that they can count back 14 generations. I'm actually really, really impressed with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually not doing that work. My mom is doing that work. And so she's been able to go back 14, and she knows there's at least three to five more that what? she could probably track, but she just hasn't gotten that far yet. Well, and she didn't know her dad's side of the family, which she's learning that part. Well, it's amazing with all the DNA and genealogy websites. I don't know if she's doing that, but it's amazing the things that we can do now that we, you know, couldn't do in years past. But Marissa, I tend to be a creature of habit, and I try my best to break from it when I can. So I'm going to try to avoid doing things in a, a strict chronological manner. Uh, can you give an introduction of what you do with Blackdom Clothing Line and Blackdom Townsite Company? Uh, of course, we're going to delve deeper later, but uh, how about just a teaser for now? Yeah, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk more about Blackdom Clothing and Productions. Uh, Blackdom Townsite, it's an established uh, um, incorporation that we have not actively started working. Uh, we've got to reach other goals before we uh, get that up and running, so that Right now, it's sitting there. We've got our Articles of Incorporation established. So I'm going to speak more about blocking clothing and productions right now. Um, the, the, the goal of the business is to uh, assist Dr. Nelson with uh, lifting his work on Blackdom and the Afro Frontier. And my role, um, I'm, I'm sometimes making it up as I go. I track and develop relationships. I manage his schedule calendar. I track goals and milestones. I manage communications. Um, I do a little bit of marketing. I negotiate um, what we do on our newsletter um, with um, our website, and I help manage our website. I also negotiate and execute contracts. Uh, when Dr. Nelson has been contracted to do a presentation um, or anything of that manner. Um, I also manage the budget and the finances, and I'm developing systems and operations as we go. I know that sounds fancy. It's not. 
we're literally learning this as we go, uh, and we are um, got a small budget because we've yet to find partners that we want to engage in financially yet. We've got potential partners that we're talking to. So with that said, we have been operating on a shoestring budget. Now, when you talk about when you talk about partners, um, are we talking about like corporate partners or you know just uh, single investors or? Yeah, so I would say uh, single investors, other businesses that want to help fund maybe a presentation. So we partnered with New Mexico State March. Uh, Dr. Nelson did a presentation with um, Dr. Uh, Dulcinea Lara there at NMSU in March, and so that was a partnership. Went under their name. He was contracted and helped um, produce a presentation that talked about pluriversity. Okay. Well, you know, you've made a living in the business world for quite some time now. Uh, before uh, we traded using apps on our phones or, or day trading online, you took orders for stock trades and worked with actual stock traders on the New York and, and other stock exchanges. How'd you get into that and uh, tell us about some of your experiences doing that stuff? Huh. Well, in, in, in Santa Fe, it's a who you know kind of game. And a girlfriend of mine, she was actually older than me, um, we both went to Santa Fe High School, and she was just beginning her career as um, a stockbroker, and she was partnering with uh, someone else. And she managed his, um, it was like his support system as she was learning, and they needed someone to come work at the office as a cashier. And in those days, it used to be a caged area where we would take orders. That is where I started, and then I worked my way up to um, operations manager. And, yeah, that was back in the day when brokers would um, put their orders on a ticket, ring the bell, they'd give them to me, and then I learned a whole new language, and I would enter it on what was called a wire system, and I would deliver those orders to uh, Chicago floor, New York Stock Exchange floor, the over, over-the-counter floors. Um, yeah, that was back in the day before they could do that on their computers. And, and when you say Chicago, that's a commodities exchange, isn't it? Yeah, now now you're asking me to remember things. <laughs> I <don't> remember. <laughs> now, are you talking? Are you talking about? Did people actually walk in? I mean, I'm I'm thinking of an old like Western Union or like old kind of an old West Bank. Uh, not not to date you like that, but kind of an old best. When you talk about a caged, it's uh, okay. Caged, you can date me like that. <laughs> a caged area like that. I'm assuming this is probably the 1980s. Um, are we talking about people actually walking in with with cash or checks and and filling out order forms and giving them to you? This was the mid-90s, so this is right about the time that tech stocks were taking off. Okay. And um, it lines up for me with uh, the whole situation with um, O.J. Simpson, and it was like right around that whole time. Um, but, but what was going on with the tech industry was getting people uh, to go through their, their, um, their safes, safety deposit boxes, envelopes, boxes, knowing, you know what, I think Grandma gave me some stock certificates that I should see if I should cash in and maybe get in on this new tech thing that's going on. So about that time, we had lots of people uh, coming into the office with piles of their stock certificates that I would have to take in kind of like cash and give them receipts. And then we would send them to New York, and then the transfer agent would do whatever they did, and then it would show up in their accounts within three to four days. And this is something you just kind of learned on the fly, or, or 
mean, uh, no, no, I had a really, really great operations manager. Um, she's still in the industry. She lives in California, and uh, she was an excellent boss. And, um, yeah, we had a lot of compliance issues that we had to deal with, and most of what we were doing was by hand. It was also computers and the wire system, but it was a very old-fashioned way of doing things. Yeah, people would come in with checks and cash and their stock certificates. Wow, that's unbelievable. I, you know, uh, did now did you ever get to the point where you were doing any trading? Actually, taking uh, what is it called the Series Seven? You have to take uh, before you can get a, be a licensed broker or anything. Did you did you ever go that route, or did you just do the the cashier thing? Well, so I started as cashier, then I became a sales assistant to the top broker in the branch, and then I was then promoted to operations manager. So now I um, uh, managed all the sales assistants in the office and helped them manage their book with their brokers, so the, their broker's books. So, And then I was recruited, so the woman that hired me um, got me that job there. She moved over. So that was Morgan Stanley, and then she went over to UBS Payne Weber. Back then it was just Payne Weber. I think now it's just UBS. Um, and she asked me to come work with her and the guy that recruited her to come work with her there. So I moved over there. I ended up leaving the industry because I was raising a toddler at the time, and um I just kind of got over the whole very patriarchal system, um, very competitive. It looks like it could be pretty stressful too. And of course, I'm I'm imagining the old days of of the nightly news showing you know ticker tapes and and things flying through the New York Stock Exchange. And that's kind of the actually the picture I'm getting of you sitting in some you know caged box taking orders. Yeah, it, was, it, it could get pretty intense because if I had brokers that were trying to do trades for themselves friends and family members before clients, I had to be on top of it and witness it and see it come through the tickers. And if I saw that, I had to bust all their personal trades and all their close relationships because they had to divulge their close relationships to us. It was part of compliance rules in those days. And so I would have to go bust their trades and make sure their clients' trades went in first. So if there was a profit... The firm kept it. If there was a loss, the broker had to pay it back. This whole thing sounds so. I mean, you know, what I've talked. I mean, I've, I've got, I've got in my, I've got my Edward Jones app and my my Charles Schwab app right there on my phone. And you know, you trade basically the touch of a thumb and a couple of taps on a keyboard. And it, it's amazing to to think back. And I am old enough to remember those days uh, when when yeah, trades were done. Yeah, I have a Meritrade and E-Trade account. I do the same thing. And you do them right there from your phone. I mean, you don't even you know it's it's you don't even have to log on to a desktop anymore. It's um half asleep at seven thirty. <laughs> it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. It but is amazing. You you moved on from that. Yeah, well so I left and I became self employed because I had this toddler I was raising and the industry was not very accommodating to young families. Right. And it just was really stressful. I had an active very active creative son and I just and I was commuting and I really felt like I uh was not in my body a majority of the time. Right. And it was really stressful. And I just really felt like I needed more control over my life and schedule. And I just felt like I wasn't appreciated. Yeah, well, I can't think of uh, probably more of a 180-degree turn because 
you know, most of us are old enough to remember how the grunge scene exploded uh, in the early 90s. For me, uh, I remember buying the Nirvana's, um, for the life of me, can't remember the, the, the name of the, the, the album, had the little baby floating in the pool. But it was, uh, you know, August of 1991. I was about to start my senior year of, of high school. I was in the locker room like before or after football practice, and I played it. I put it in my boombox. But, um, you know, that grunge scene exploded in the early 90s, and um, many, many of us enjoyed it from varying places geographically, but you actually worked in the Seattle music scene. How, how did you get up to Seattle, and, and what, what exactly did you do uh, with that burgeoning, you know, if not short-lived uh, cultural phenomenon that we know of as grunge? Yeah, I was um, in my uh, late teens, early 20s, and I was um, working in the music scene in Santa Fe. And when I say that, that is that has a lot of different meanings. Mostly I was working in bars and helping booking bands. Right. Okay. Um, and I wanted to explore uh, working with, with bands because I had a knack for being at the forefront of music. Somehow, even in the 70s, I would be able to find up-and-coming bands before they became popular. So I knew I had a a knack at that, and I even saw that I was doing that um, in Santa Fe, and we got stuff late compared to everybody else. So um, I wanted to explore it, and I knew I was young, and, you know, I thought, well, this is the best time to do this. And so I started exploring locations. I knew I did not want to be in Los Angeles. So um, the last three places I started exploring were Atlanta, Denver, and um, Seattle. Well, Atlanta had a pretty cool music scene. Um, As you know, they had, um, and I'm a rocker more than I was a a hip-hop or rap person. Uh, In the 70s when I was younger, I loved R&B and soul. I was not a big fan of what was going on in the 90s. Um, so I was attracted to bands in Atlanta like Arrested Development, The Brains, Georgia Satellites. And so I was a little concerned because I knew there was a, a lot going in, on there at the time with the way the Atlanta culture was changing. And in Denver, Denver was close, and the, the music in Denver was cool. Um, I'm curious. I thought maybe I could get in on that. The Fluid, the LaDonna's, Big Head Todd. I didn't realize Big Head Todd was from Denver. I, when you say Denver, I don't, or when you say music scene, I, I literally, I'm drawing a blank. I don't know what, what is, what, 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 do, what do people associate Denver with? Other than maybe the, the Fluid. The few, okay. The LaDonna's, yeah. So there was, so there were a few bands there, you know, and it was, you know, close to mom. Right. But when I really started taking a deeper look at Seattle, I saw that they had bands that I learned to enjoy from my parents, like The Ventures, Jimi Hendrix, Hart, Paul Reveal and the Raiders, The Sonics, The Malvins. And then I started learning there, were, there, there was an up-and-coming scene that had been happening for a while. And I started investigating that scene, and I thought, okay, I think that's where I want to go. And it was burgeoning. It was just right at the cusp. Because I got there January 1989. Yeah, that, that was and right about went, the time. Yep. And I went to the Art Institute of Seattle there. And you know what? It was good I went. It was good I went to go venture that situation, what, what I learned. Yeah, I, I have no interest in playing that game. It, what, the, I, the Art yeah, Institute was, game? 
Uh, the music scene. It was. Oh, okay. It, it's um, it's definitely a man's world. And the women I saw doing the work um, in the production management scene, uh, amazing women. I was an intern with um, Chris Cornell's wife, Susan Silver. Oh, wow. Yeah, and... Um, was this before Soundgarden got started? This is after. Okay. They were already... They were already... They were right at the time. I think it was... Um, God, what album was popular? I'm better at looking at the cover. You're not going to Yeah, get... I'm I'm better I'm better at looking at covers. Um don't ever try to get me to say names of songs or or names of albums. I've I've literally got to go look at it. Um this was this was right before Soundgarden started getting known in the US. They were already known in Europe. Okay. And this was right about the time that Alice in Chains was starting, Tad, um and actually even before Pearl Jam it was Mother Love Bone. Oh wow. Yeah, so that is is when I was working with her, and Soundgarden uh, was just getting ready to bust here in in the U.S. I was like right at right about that period is when they got big here in the U.S. Um, and then Alice in Chains. Um, and did you work directly with any of these bands? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to uh, you know I did the fan mail for Alice in Chains. Oh wow. Uh-huh, and I did things like inventory. I mean, I literally did these menial tasks, but it was what I needed to learn how it worked in the background. Right. And I would say probably the, 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 the biggest thing that stuck out for me, uh, because the lead singer for um, Lane Mother Love Bone passed oh. away. Yeah, no, 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 Mother Love Bone. Okay. This was a band before Pearl Jam. I'm not even talking about Alice in Chains anymore. The main band was Mother Love Bone. That became Pearl Jam. Okay. But I was working for, and, and Chris Cornell's wife managed Mother Love Bone. All right. She was also managing Alice in Chains with, an, with another manager. I don't, I don't need to get into the names. The right. point being is um, I got to see on the other side the things that you don't see, you don't hear, the negotiations made for the artists that are doing this work. And the lead singer was having a heroin addiction problem. And she asked, I just so happened to be in her office, she asked, can I get him in treatment before they go on the road? And um, they said, no, just get him what he needs and just make sure he gets the job done. And we ended up losing him a few months later and it that band ended up becoming Mother uh, Pearl Jam. Oh, I didn't see. That's a history that I didn't know. Was that was heroin? Yeah. A, was heroin a big thing in Seattle at that time? It was, and I didn't understand that. I come from sunny New Mexico, right? So I didn't really. I mean, I could feel that there was this different vibe there, and you could feel it in the music for sure. You you could feel what you were witnessing. I tell people I've never saw so many shades of green and gray. <laughs> like in Seattle, <laughs> and and the, and the music really um, provided that feeling of the city. Um, and yeah, there was a there there were a lot of there was, they had their suicidal their depression their they had high rates of that stuff up there. And I did not know that until I got there. Now, did you feel? And I felt it. Did you ever experience seasonal affective disorder? 
when you're up there? Because I know that when I don't yeah. see the sun, it, it affects me. It did. And at it, some at some point, um, obviously you're not still in Seattle. At some point you made your way back down to uh, to Santa Fe, Albuquerque, that metro area. And, uh, you know, a few, years ago, a few years ago you crossed paths with someone uh, who led you pretty directly to where you are now uh, and what you're involved with professionally. How did you and Dr. Nelson uh, come to be business partners? Um, it was Facebook, actually. Um, we had a, a mutual friend on Facebook. I actually worked with her, um, the woman that we were both commonly connected to. I don't know. I made a comment. He liked it. Then I found a, a message in my box, maybe, I don't know, a few days later. And he first thing he asked is, have you ever heard of Blackton, New Mexico? That was his first <laughs> question. He doesn't mess around. He was all about Blackton. And so before you knew it, we were having this conversation. And he's, I'm stunned because I've never heard about it. I even grew up in Las Cruces. Right. So I'm in, you know, I grew up in that area, even though my family's from northern New Mexico. My dad worked with um, the White Sands Missile Range and went to school at New Mexico State. Um, and he, my parents got married really young and headed that way. Um, that's how we connected. Facebook comment and conversations just started from there, and we have not stopped talking about Blackton and the Afro Frontier since. And it's funny because you and I have talked about this before. That's exa- that's how I actually learned about Blackdom too. Somebody was using the hashtag, a mutual friend of ours was using the hashtag on, on, on a lot of different stuff, and I just really didn't know what it meant. And then, of course, then I did, <laughs> you know. Right. But you got you got involved with working with uh, Dr. Nelson. Kind of tell me how that business partnership kind of all came together. Mm, like I said, we started talking about Blackdom pretty I mean, that that was every time we got together, it was hours of talking about his work. Because uh, I, I knew what he was talking about was, um, I mean, I just kept questioning, kept looking at the the evidence. And um, like, okay, he's got something special here that we all need to know. And um, it, it's that same impulse that I had working in the music scene. There was an impulse. It was like he is on the forefront of something here. Um, and I could feel something was shifting in our culture. I felt, uh, and I would talk about it a lot, I felt like some racial injustice was going to hit the country. I didn't know what that would look like, what would instigate that, but I had really been starting to feel the, the discontent in myself and all of us right about 2014. And it just, I, I just could feel it more and more just watching the news, watching people, watching what was going on with people moving to New Mexico and just, just paying attention. And so when I, I learned Timothy's work, Dr. Nelson's work, um, I could see that there was a big gap in what I learned in my history and really kind of answered why we have identity issues. People of color in the borderlands. Right. And I just really felt like um, I that this work had to be lifted, and I could see that he was doing it on his own. So, okay, you've got this clothing, clothing line, 
what that's really where this all got started with the clothing, the clothing line. line okay yeah because he said i i just know that i've got to remix my dissertation because the people need this more than academia academia needs it but regular people need this history and so that's why i created this t-shirt I think that this is going to be an entryway in for them to learn the history. And I was like, oh, God, that's brilliant. So he kind of explained it like, you know, I've got to remix my dissertation. I'm from Compton, and yeah, that's what we do. We remix things. And that really struck a chord for me because I've always enjoyed music that crosses over into different genres, right? Right. And I knew that the way he was doing this on social media was doing exactly that. And he was he was getting to people. Brilliant, right? Well, you know, and I go ahead, and that's what that's what stayed with me. That's what stayed with you. Well, you know, the the main angle, obviously, you know, we're 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 a podcast that has to deal with uh, mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And the thing that interested me the most uh, about wanting to interest uh, to interview you was the work that you've done with Doctor Nelson. you know, the Blackton Clothing and Blackton Townsite Company share a research and scholarship of the historian Dr. Nelson, uh, like I said, via Roads Less Traveled. And I've learned this was because you wanted to share this work and consciousness with those uh, who probably don't, you know, most likely don't read uh, peer-reviewed journals and other scholarly works. Uh, now, you've used film and your websites, among other things. Um, but of most interest to me has been the vastness, and when I say vastness, I mean vastness, of your social media presence uh, with what seems like countless pages, or if I would call them brands, uh, through which you tell this story. Uh, can you tell me all about this idea, uh, the strategies? Now, some people may think it's obvious uh, because social media is such a big thing, but you made it work. Um, and how the content on certain pages uh, seems to be really particular to the character of that each individual page. I know that's a long question. Take as much time as you want uh, to answer. <laughs> I, I remember you saying, um, so is your technique to bombard people? <laughs> <laughs> I think you said that at one point. You know, I, I can't take credit for, for any of that. Timothy was doing um, this uh, social media uh, thing before he met me. Um, and he developed that um during, you know, his postdoctoral life, like right there, and maybe even at the tail end of it, I'm not really sure. But what he did know as a historian is that uh, it was an, it was a new frontier, a digital frontier, and he knew that the opportunity there was big, and it was free. And since he was living on the margins and trying to figure out what to do with his work, his instinct was use this vehicle to put this history out. The other thing he realizes, oh, this might actually be a great way to model what black demites did a hundred years ago when they colonized Chavez County and created Blackdom in a virtual way. So what he did is he took up as much space, digital space, by creating several pages, several hashtags, and that's sort of what he, that I mean, that is the idea is he's, I think the, what you said is a constant barrage. <laughs> well, and, and of so, course, when of course, I, it, it, certainly not, I'm not saying that in, in a kind of, any kind of negative or pejorative, it's just, I'm no, constantly, 
Well, we thought we think it's funny because it was actually one of the things when I first started working with him that I was critical about. I'm like, this, this. I just want you to know we don't want to trigger people. <laughs> so we have been in a constant exchange. There's been a push and pull attention about how he does do that, and it's 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 part of his pedagogy. He knew that this digital space. Facebook, Instagram, whatever we want to call it, he knew it was going to help democratize thought, intellectual property, and businesses for for a lot more people. And he he thought, um, well, he decided to simultaneously flourish his pedagogy, which incorporates Salvador Dali's The Persistence of Memory. And it's only been in the recent months because we're in this constant you know, push and pull about what I think should be cleaner. And he's like, look, I'm just trying to get this stuff out there, and, and, and it's got to be daily, and I've got to hit all the pages. And as time has gone by, we're, we're refining each page, and we're beginning we're, – we're, we've entered a space where we can slow down a little bit, and, and the pages are becoming uh, their own personalities. But that that is that that is Dr. Nelson. I can't take any credit for that. Maybe the only credit I can take is the constant um, pushing, questioning, and encouragement to refine it. That's really my role there. Now, who who actually posts the content? Timothy, I I do too, but I don't do it as much as Timothy. Okay, because you know I've noticed, and, and again, we we both kind of chuckle when I meant when I mentioned you know when you mentioned the the the, the idea of being the barrage, um, but you know I'm actually relatively new. I mean I've been on Facebook for you know almost 15 years now, but I just got into Instagram. Well, when I started this story, to be perfectly honest, the only reason I started an Instagram page, and I of course have my personal page, and we have the Square Peg Podcast Instagram page, um, but it's really when I got on Instagram that I really started to see all of the different pages and all of the different brands. And of course it's, I mean, I don't think it's, it's doesn't take a, a, a rocket science to figure out that like you were saying, the different pages have their different characters. And I, I think the one that, you know, Blackton thesis uh, tends to have more scholarly or intellectually um, oriented material. And uh, the Mitty Moore page uh, tends to be a little bit more snarky and has the memes for those of you who don't know Mitty Moore, uh, if you read if you if you read Dr. Nelson's uh, dissertation, uh, as I have, she was a member of the Blackton 13 or if not, if not a member of the Blackton 13, she actually owned she owned a stake in, in the town of Blackton, but but operated a she was not a member of the Blackton 13. She was a uh, she was a largest landowner. She was a madam gunslinger bootlegger and she did have. Um, right. But her the but, largest. Yes. But but she definitely she was not part of the thirteen though. Okay, so she was not part of the thirteen, but she actually owned land in and like a lot of other people lived and made her uh, and made her living in Roswell. In um, I don't know, is it fair to call her her business a house of ill repute? Yes. Okay. Well, there you go. I mean, so, body business. Yeah, <laughs> the body business. So um, <laughs> B A W D Y, not the B O D I, but or B O D Y. Anyway, exactly. Not not to belabor that point any further, but um, no. But I think that the character of her page goes right along with who she was, and right. um, and I can tell you, uh, without a doubt, the use of social media to get the message out has been, at the at least, it's been successful as far as reaching me. Because I think that that's how, you know, we talked a little bit before, uh, I think when I interviewed Dr. Nelson about how I met him, 
uh, and how I ended up kind of coming back in contact with him, you know, a couple of years later, which ends up being about, you know, not quite a year ago. But um, like I said before, that we have a friend who uses uses a hashtag that references Blackdom. It kind of piqued my interest. And, um, you know, if it wasn't for your heavy social media presence, I, you know, I may not have I may not have had uh, ended up with two guests out of it. So <laughs> I think we've all we've all benefited uh, in, in one way or another. And um, I definitely enjoy looking all of the different content that's created. Now, do you know how many pages there are? Off the top of my head, uh, no. <laughs> I think I would have to sit here, write them down, and count them. Um, if I'm guessing, I, I would say the top. The, our top pages are um, Doctor Nelson, the historian, Blackham Clothing, Blackham Townsite. Uh, we haven't really been active in the Midi More Carmelita Torres page. Um, Lately, I think Timothy still goes into those spaces. I, I've not had time to. I would say those are our, our, our top pages on Facebook. And really, that's where we get most of the people that go to our website and to our events. Instagram is more of a place for Timothy to um, express. Um, yeah, and to express what he's doing in the physical realm that helps him further develop Blackham. Right. Now, there's the Frontier Alchemy. That's another page, right? No, Frontier Alchemy is not another is that page, a hashtag? but that is definitely a hashtag. Okay. It doesn't see, and that the point is it's working because I don't know whether it's a hashtag or a page off the top of my head, but I just know that it exists. So you guys are obviously, yes. you guys are obviously doing something right. Uh, Marissa, I want to go back to your advocism, adv- activism and advocacy uh, and why the future New Mexico culture is such an important connection uh, to its past and your past. Uh, let's talk about the issue of what's included in uh, local school curricula, which I know has become a, a big thing now. I know you've expressed concern uh, over what you've seen or maybe not seen in uh, your son's textbooks when he was growing up. Have you followed the recent debate uh, over the Las Cruces uh, public school policy and the many, uh, you know, on the whatever side of the spectrum that claim, uh, you know, this whatever's going on with the idea of, of possible of, of inclusion versus the idea of critical race theory and all that big debate and brouhaha that's gone down, gone on down here. Okay, so that's a that's a big question. Um, I'm not really sure what is going on in Las Cruces. What I do know is there are some great things going on in New Mexico uh, with um, some of the leaders at New Mexico State and UNM. Um, Doctor uh, Lara Dulcinea uh, Lara, I mentioned her earlier. Yes, yes. And Doctor Irene Vasquez at UNM. Um, they are doing some really, really great work, and they've helped uh, Senator Linda Lopez um, get some uh, bills passed at legislature this year to uh, bring ethnic studies into the K through 12 curricula. Um, there's, I know, prob- I, what you're speaking to, I have no idea, but I know there's some great work, and it's been really rewarding for me in this seat that I sit in working with Dr. Nelson to see emails come in inviting him to be an expert witness for this year's legislature to speak about the importance of making sure we bring ethnic studies into K-12. through So when that happens, I know what we're doing is having an impact. Right. Well, I think the uh, what's going what's going on recently in Las Cruces with the introduction introduction of this new policy is something that I've seen. Uh, I think Florida just passed a law actually 
uh, with regard to this. Uh, there was a, a school district in suburban Dallas in the Metroplex somewhere. It's going on all over the country. And, um, you know, people, a lot of critics of the, po the policy is basically what you're talking about, including um, local heritage and local cultures, which a lot of times end up not being Anglo-European uh, majority. And for some reason, I think a lot of people have a problem with that. And um, you you mentioned Doctor, and I don't, I don't want to butcher her name. Doctor, is it Dul, Dulce? Dulcinea. Dulcinea Lada, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so she was she actually spoke at several school board meetings here and uh, was very much a proponent of this new policy that did pass here in Las Cruces uh, that does concentrate on um, does concentrate on on making it a point to to include. Uh, studies that are relevant to here and culture that's relevant to native New Mexicans uh, and people like you and your family who have been here for 14 generations, in addition to what's already into the curriculum. And I don't, um, I have a hard time understanding what, what people, what exactly people would have against that. But, you know, I just had the thought this morning, there was a son, a Las Cruces Sun news article uh, that, that I looked at online. I didn't get a chance to read, but it's actually about black in New Mexico. Did you, do you follow the Sun news? This came out yesterday, correct? Uh, maybe yesterday. I looked at it. I saw it on my phone scrolling this yeah, morning. Yeah, and that was written by, I think, uh, Jennifer Olguin. Okay. I didn't. I, I scrolled through it to see who, who it was. It wasn't Dr. Nelson, but I didn't happen to remember who the name was. So you are aware of it. Yeah, yeah she works in the archives there at New Mexico State. Oh, yes, I have Google Alerts. Okay. <laughs> with, with keywords, blacked them? <laughs> so I am on top of it. When something's written or something goes down about blacked them, uh, or the Afro frontier, or African American uh, towns, or black settlements, or um, yeah, I've got different things. I, I've got alerts, so I I knew about it, and I actually uh, we emailed her yesterday to thank her for the article. Well, it's you know, um, of course, we love and respect the work that Dr. Nelson is doing, but it's also nice to see that other people have taken it up and uh, are working to get the word out and spread. Spread the word. Can I ask you, Marissa, what is what do you see in the future for uh, for your business ventures, whether it be the Blackton Townsite Company, Blackton Clothing, um, all of these different things? What do you what do you, what's what's in the future for you guys? Well, right now, um, I can't say I can't speak too much about the institutions, but we do have some things that we're negotiating at the moment, um, and. Um, as soon as we've got those uh, uh, relationships figured out and the contracts wrapped up, I can speak more about them. But um, what I can say is right now Dr. Nelson's writing a book. Another book? No, he, this, will, this will be his first book. Okay, uh, when I say the, another book, I'm talking, well, so I read his dissertation. I, I did, not a book, obviously, but and, and is it, how is it going to depart from, uh, obviously it's going to be on the issue of blackdom, right? Or not? Yes. Okay. And maybe you don't want to share too much, and I respect that. Marissa, can you tell us all the different ways? I know we did this before when I interviewed Dr. Nelson. Tell us about all the different ways people who are listening today can find out more about Blackdom, can find out more about your clothing line, the films, the social media pages. Uh, go ahead and plug away. All right. So uh, when you say films, I want to make sure that we're on the same page about that. Timothy does produce uh, short video clips. Um regarding um, his his work or maybe what he's doing in the garden. Uh, maybe uh, he'll do some snippets from events and add some text. 
I mean, there's lots of various things that he does with um, social media that not film, but it's definitely short videos. Um, so I want to make sure I'm answering your question about film because I, I know there's a lot of misunderstandings about that due to maybe a script that we were working on. And maybe Is film that what was you're referring to? no, maybe film wasn't the right word. I know there are videos on the website. Yes, yes, yes. And we have a website. You can go to um, AfroFrontier.com, and that will take you to his articles, to our past events. You can see presentations if you want to see him actually do a presentation. Um, there's articles. There's newspaper clippings. Um, there's bios for both of us. Uh, we've got the Blackton Clothing Shop there. Uh, we encourage you to support the furthering of this work. We're doing this out of our own pocket right now. Um, so any any support that we can get, we're currently a for-profit business. Um, we, will, we will be transitioning to a nonprofit, but that's probably going to be uh, within Blackton Town Site, not within Blackton Clothing. Blackton Clothing and Productions is literally about that. It's about the work that we're doing right now. So getting paid for presentations, you're getting paid for a T-shirt or cup here. We're not making a lot of money. We have, in the last two years, have been so focused on refining the message and the work of Dr. Nelson's dissertation so we can put it out in small bits and to get him... Basically, what I've heard other historians say is they had to go through a process of composting the work. Composting and the work. that's what I would say I've been witnessing Dr. Nelson do. I like that, composting the work. Well, I mean, as you know, Marissa, I read, I read Dr. Nelson's uh, dissertation before interviewing him, and as somebody who studied history and got a bachelor's degree in history, I, uh, I definitely enjoyed the geek out, the geeking out part of it. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> um, you know, and, and of course... Don't forget, uh, as far as ways that you can experience Blackdom or learn more about Blackdom, Season 2, Episode 2 of the Square Peg Podcast features none other than Dr. Timothy Nelson. You can find that in the archives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on LasCrucesToday.com. Marissa Royball, thank you very much for being my guest. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I learned a lot today. I hope our listeners did, too. Hey, thank you, Lawrence. We will see you folks next time on the next episode of the Square Peg Podcast. Take it easy, guys. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.